Beth. Again, everything that can go wrong, it's like on the wrong side of my glasses. <laughs> mm. Well, church, I, uh, I just want to start by saying this. I have been going back and forth on what to preach on today. Um, and I didn't decide until this morning at like 6.30. I had kind of two sermons like ready to go. And um, it's like, which one, Lord, which one? And so I, th- I think what I did, uh, I prayed, and then I kind of thought, okay, which one do I need to hear the most? Is that fair? Which one do I need to hear the most? So uh, I, you'll see on the bulletin, oh, sorry, this fear and trembling, fear and trembling. Daryl, I think that's a little hot. I'm getting a, some feedback or something. So as we, as we um, have been going through Romans, and I, I think I mentioned already, after we get back from Sandy Island in a couple of weeks, we're going to pick right back up in Romans 12. But I've been kind of thinking, okay, what are some of the loose ends or what are some things to shore up before we move forward? And I did have a couple of things in mind, but what I landed on is this idea of fear and trembling, fear and trembling. And, and many of you will recognize right away the passage that I'm thinking of. It's in Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn there. We're going to spend some time in Philippians today, so I do encourage you to get it out. I'm going to jump to Romans, uh, but you don't need to follow along with that. Just stay in Philippians. And In Philippians chapter 2, there's this, I don't know, maybe a bit of a curious couple of verses where Paul says, My friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but... Now much more my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. It is God who is at work in you to will and to act to fulfill His good purpose or according to His purposes. And the reason this came up is uh, I was thinking, and it actually came up at our men's breakfast yesterday. So we gathered downstairs yesterday with some muffins and, and uh, donuts. I almost said hot dogs. That would be strange. Uh, donuts and, and juice. And we, we gather around this theme. And, and part of the theme was just this idea of uh, what is true love? What does it mean to be truly a loving person. And I want to read just a little excerpt from the book that we've been going through by Brent Hansen because he just captures something so wonderfully well. And I want to add a little to it, but just want to give you this piece of it. So if you haven't been joining us, guys, uh, great book, well worth your read. We'd love to see you. Uh, we've got one more, week of, one more week of this coming up in October, and then we'll be doing something. Is that right, Ed? One more? Two more? Something like that. We'd love to have you with us. But here's what he says. Uh, Real love, real love means wanting the best for someone. If you do not desire that for someone, you do not love that someone. It's that simple. You may say you love them, you may think you love them, but no, you don't love them. Now to be sure, the word love gets used for practically everything. A friend might say to you, I love this woman I met. And he might mean a hundred different things, but 99 of them will not be wanting the best for that woman. 
He might mean she attracts me. He might mean she makes me laugh. He might mean she makes me feel good. He might mean she makes me feel important or she excites me. All of this love can be roughly distilled into one idea. I love how I feel. Or even more briefly, I love me. And he goes on to say, you know, in the twist of the English language, we say we love all sorts of things, objects, items. His, he goes on and on about pizza. He says, when I love pizza, it's not that I want to protect it with my life. It's that I want to consume it. It's that I want to devour it. It's that I want it to make me feel good. And the more I love it, the more I consume it. But when loving a person, when loving a person, it can't work that way or it's not love. And that actually got me thinking about other types of things where we have... We use this, um, this beautiful and sometimes uh, divine language to describe things in our life that seem good and selfless and uh, wholesome and godly and yet often are not. You know how when you watch the news or you see a report about someone who's done this incredible gift of kindness to a stranger or maybe they serve in a soup kitchen or they've helped someone or they've... Uh, you know, saw someone on the street and helped them out. And what do they often say? They say, oh, I don't know, I've, I feel really good when I help people. Right? Did you hear that a lot? Oh, I, feel, I feel better giving than receiving, which is a wonderful, wonderful kind of thing. In fact, it's really good to be in a world where people feel that way. But isn't it interesting that, again, it comes back to what is it that makes me feel good? And so as I read this passage in Philippians, I think also back to Romans chapter 3. And I think back to, to where uh, uh, Paul says to the, to the Romans, I think I've got it up here. Uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. Right? No one seeks God. No one really is obedient. And does Paul mean by that that no one is ever kind or that no one is ever, you know, loving in a relationship? I don't think he does. I don't think he means that, that we do all things bad. But I think he is hitting on this idea that in our state, fallen, uh, with sin in the world, and then raised in that environment of sin, and then corrupted both uh, intrinsically, but also uh, in our it just living in this atmosphere, right? Being discipled by the world on a day-to-day basis. Even the good things we do fail to live up to the standard that God has for goodness. Can you imagine God up in heaven and he says to Jesus, he's like, all right, we're good on the plan, right? You're going to go down there to earth. You're going to take on human form. And then all sorts of bad things are going to happen to you. Uh, and, and then you're even going to die a painful death. And you're going to bear a spiritual burden that, that quite honestly, apart from our all-knowingness of being God, it would be hard to fathom what that would be like. Uh, but we're going to do all that so that we feel better about ourselves. 
Because, you know, I just feel really good when I do nice things for people. Can you imagine that? No, Jesus comes because of his great love for you and for me. Jesus knows what love is. Jesus knows what true service is. Not to make himself feel better, but to honor the other, to truly desire the good of the other. And there are times when we all do that, but there's always this little tinge, if you will. The Bible says that our righteousness, compared to God's righteousness, looks like filthy rags. So why do I bring all this up? Because Paul knows this when he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul knows that even the good we do does not earn us any of God's love or favor or does not earn us his grace. Paul makes the case all throughout the first section of Romans that we will never be righteous in our own strength. We'll never be righteous by us being better, by us trying harder, by us being more knowledgeable, more consistent. It won't happen. It's a losing game. He says the only way you'll ever be righteous is by faith. So then when he reaches out to the Philippians and writes them a letter, he says, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that any of the good you do is not actually you doing it, but it's God doing it in you and through you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then the next verse, right? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is the one doing it. This is a common theme in Scripture. Jesus in his uh, sermon on the vine and the branches. I think I've got a bit of it here. Yeah. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Now I have to admit, when I read that verse, and I see what Jesus says, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. I'm like, that sounds great. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Lord, I want that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God, have you not been paying attention to all the wonderful things that I'm able to do? Have you been up there unaware of how incredibly capable you have already made me? Do you, I, we don't say that, right? But isn't there a part of us that's like, I think I'm, I think I'm not the worst? I've done a couple of things, like I got my clothes on today in the right order, right? The belt's on the right way, you know? I mean, everything else didn't work today, but I got that right, right, Jesus? And he's like, no, no, not really, like not even that you can do apart from me. And I bring all this up because I see and I, and I sense and I observe that, that the church in the world today. And, and I, I, that's me too. Like, I'm in the church, right? The church in the world today, I do believe that in some ways we have actually lost our understanding and awareness 
of the depth of our need for Christ. I think that we, we have uh, bought into some of the lies of the world that we can make things happen if we just try hard enough. If we just uh, get, you know, and, and it's, there's different ways this shows up. If we just get the right program at our church, then the church will explode and it'll be amazing. If we just have uh, the right, you know, people in the right places, then all the ministries will be amazing. You know, so that's like in the church, but in our lives. If, if I could just, uh, you know, figure out how to deal with this sin in my life, then, then I can take off and I won't be held back or, or pulled down anymore. Or if I could just, uh, you know, if I could learn these new skills, then, then everything's going to be okay. And then it, it goes into the communal, like the, the nation and the world. Like if we could get these people elected, then, then finally we could have the kind of country we want. Right? And I'm telling you today, all of those things are based on the idea that this verse isn't true. It's all based on the idea that this verse isn't true. And it's all based on the idea that this verse isn't true. Church, we will never work our way into the world we want. We will never work our way into the life we want. We will never work our way into the church we want. It'll never happen. Never. You know, when the country was founded, and set aside for a minute, you know, the country was founded by Christians and atheists and deists and all sorts of people with all sorts of different ideas, right? Uh, And so, you know, were the founders of America Christian? Some of them were, but probably not even most of them. Like, let's just, probably not even most of them. And early in the history of this nation, the, the very actual minority of people in this country claim Christ. Um, to have a, this dominant church in the United States is actually a, um, you know, a phenomenon of the, really the 20th century. But that aside, when, when you look at the way this nation's constitution was written and the way the government was built, and, and again, like I've seen this too, I'm not one of those people. The constitution is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not a, it's not a, it's not, God didn't write the Constitution. But one thing that they believed when they wrote this thing was that people are not to be trusted because when people have power, they will abuse it. That was a basic tenet of many of the founding uh, uh, fathers, founding documents, is this idea that people are not to be trusted. And I do wonder if we have forgotten that in the church. You see this in churches. You see it in politics. You see it in organizations where people are given way too much power with virtually no oversight. And then really horrible things happen. And people wonder, what happened? How could that have happened? How could that have happened in my church? How could that have happened in my Christian school? How could that have happened in my missionary organization? How could that have happened in my country? Right? Yes, we need to take these verses seriously. But here's the thing it always starts with taking it seriously right here. I am capable of the worst kinds of evil. And not just Stephen Johnson, like all of us should be able to say, I am capable 
of the worst kinds of evil. If I were in a position of power, I would be corrupted too. And, and you know, this is not really where I intended to go with, and I don't want to focus here, but it's just so, it's just right there for the taking. You know, if you as a believer think that giving the right people power is going to make this country what you want it to be, you are going to be disappointed. Because it doesn't matter who you put in power, right? It doesn't matter who you put in power. Uh, it's, they can't do it. It's impossible. But what about us? What about in our own lives? What is it that we are supposed to do in order to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? In order to facilitate, if you will, and by facilitate, I'm using the, the very strict meaning of it, to make something easier, to make something fossil, to make it easier. What can we do to facilitate God changing us so that we will and act according to His good purposes? And two weeks ago, I talked about some specific things we can do to kind of put ourselves in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, to actively submit ourselves not only to His will in the terms of being obedient to His rules, but submit ourselves to His person and be obedient to, to Jesus, to the person of Jesus, to the reality of Jesus. Submit ourselves to the, to the rule of the gospel by taking time to be with Jesus in our day, multiple times a day, by being in the Word, by praying, by worshiping, by celebrating with other believers the glory of the gospel, by worshiping together and alone. These things that we can do. But I think at a deeper level, there's a fundamental resistance that we might have. And the way to break it, as far as I know, is to acknowledge my deep-seated need for someone else to rule my life. I can't do it. And here's the thing. If you look at verse 12 in your Bible, it's not up on, the, on that slide, but if you look at verse 12 in Philippians chapter 2, what is the first word of that verse in your, in your Bible? Anyone have it? Therefore. And the old preacher trick, always see what the therefore is therefore. Right? So we're going to see what the therefore is there for. What came before this? Well, what came before this is the great Christ hymn, where it says, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, verse 5, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some of the translations say, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. Meaning Jesus was fully comfortable uh, uh, partnering with this reality of letting go of his prerogatives as deity, as God, as creator of the universe with divine knowledge and power and being omnipresent and uh, you know, having all of the attributes of God. He says, I don't have to hold on to these things for my sake. I'm willing to surrender them all. Why? So that he could be, so that he could be made nothing by taking on the form of a servant, the nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So you just imagine what does this life of surrender for Jesus look like? 
He has everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. All power, knowledge, wisdom, insight, presence, everything. He's got the glory and adoration of the angels and archangels and even the rocks and the trees will cry out his name. And he says, yeah, let's give that up for a while because I don't need all that. Not for myself. I don't need it. I'm going to become nothing. How does he become nothing? By being like us. Okay, that should key you in right away to where we stand on the totem pole, right? Hey, Jesus, hey, God, how could you become nothing? Oh, I know, I could be like you guys. So he does it. He becomes like us. He becomes weak and vulnerable. Guys, think about this. Jesus was human. Do you ever stop and just think about these things? This isn't for theologians. This is just for everybody. Jesus was human. So what does that mean? Jesus smelled. Jesus burped. And maybe other types of gas was passed. Jesus got tummy aches. Jesus had restless nights of sleep. Jesus got aches and pains. Right? Jesus not only smelled, but he hung out with 12 guys who probably also smelled. And he had to smell them. He never had to smell that stuff before. I don't know why I'm focusing all on smells. <laughs> the point is, he's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on this stuff. And to do that, I have to give up all the other esoteric and wonderful and sublime realities. And then he just doesn't just become one of us. But he puts himself beneath all of us by becoming our servant or our slave. And then he died for us. Even death on a cross. The most painful, torturous method of death that the Romans could conjure. And then on top of that, when he died, he took all of your sin, all of my sin, all of your shame, all of our guilt, right? All of that. And he put it on himself. He'd never known any of it before. He put it on himself and he bore it. Guys, I don't like bearing my own pain. And sometimes I will go to great lengths to avoid bearing my own pain. Jesus willingly took on all of our pain. Don't get me started about avoiding shame. Jesus willingly took on all the shame. And man, I try to justify myself so much. I try to avoid bearing my own guilt too. And Jesus is like, well, I'll take that too, Stephen. I'll take that too, church. Give it all to me. I'll carry it. This is, this is a life of complete surrender to the will of the Father. Not only that, but while Jesus walked the earth, he says, and uh, he says it in John, uh, John 5, John 12, he says, I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. I don't say anything unless I hear the Father saying it. Jesus, who is God, gives up his rights and prerogatives 
even to say what he wants to say when he wants to say it. He gives up his right to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Even the God of the universe says to the Father, if you're not doing it, I'm not doing it. If you're not saying it, I'm not saying it. This is what it looks like, if you will. And again, I know Jesus, Jesus didn't need salvation, right? But when you talk about work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the Father I work in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. Jesus modeled this. The one person who didn't need to did it. So that all of us who needed to and who couldn't could have a chance, could have a hope, could have an expectation that the day will come when I too will be able to yield myself to the will of the Father the way Jesus did. And what does God do for people who humble themselves and surrender their lives for the sake of the Father? Well, it says that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And no, we're not Jesus, so it's not going to look exactly like that for us. But who is going to inherit with Jesus all the promises of God? Who is going to be received in glory with Jesus before the Father? You and me. The Bible talks about this. We're going to be glorified too. We read that in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be glorified too. Jesus was the first because Jesus was the only one who submitted themselves to the Father. But what Jesus said is, look, now that you're in me and I'm in you, you can live the kind of life that I lived. And here's the thing. You've got you to gotta kind of allow yourself to believe what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus didn't do all this stuff because he was God. Like that's, that's actually kind of important. Does this make sense? Jesus, Jesus said, I'm not going to hold on to the, God, the godness stuff too tightly because I don't need that and in fact Jesus admitted to all of us that there were things he didn't know right there were things that surprised him and there were things he couldn't do Jesus admits this he already said if I don't hear the father saying it I don't say it if I don't see the father doing it I don't do it right so that's right there but then also you think about, do you know the story in Mark where Jesus is going into his hometown and he's preaching the gospel in his hometown and they all reject him because a prophet is always rejected in his hometown? And Mark says these very clear and powerful words. He says, Jesus could not perform many miracles and he was astonished at their lack of faith. Jesus apparently did not have the ability to just perform miracles at will. I suggest to you that like the rest of us, he only performed miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that just like the rest of us, he only had divine knowledge if God gave it to him. The Father, the Holy Spirit gave it to him. And this is not some kind of like out there view of Jesus. This is just, this is like, like systematic theology 
level level one, maybe level three. I don't know. It's getting there, but it's not. This is. I'm not talking. I'm not espousing some crazy view here. Like this is how people have understood the way Jesus operated on this earth is that he fully embraced his humanity. So Jesus didn't. Uh, Jesus didn't have a perfect relationship with the Father. He didn't always go off to pray. He didn't always. Uh, 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 you know, do these miracles because he was God. He did it because he was a fully submitted human. He was showing us this is the life you can have. But my goodness, I've never been able to have it. I've never been able to have it. And I want it. I want that life. And because I've never been able to have it, Paul rightly encourages me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, in awe and reverence of the creator of the universe, and not in anxiety, don't hear that, but an appropriate checking of myself, if you will. God, am I, am I, am I, still, on the, am I still on the way? Am I still on the path? By the way, you don't have to ask what is the path, right? It's because who is the path? Like, am I still in Jesus? And I don't mean like, am I going to heaven if I die right now? That's not even what I'm talking about. But am I abiding the way Jesus invited me to abide? Am I surrendered the way Jesus invited me to surrender? You know, when Jesus said, oh, all these miracles I've done, you guys can do more than that. It's not because he saw the greatness in us. It's that he knew what a surrendered life could lead to. He knew what would happen in an individual or a community's life when the Holy Spirit was present and powerful in a way that he was welcome and, and, and received fully by surrender, again, surrendering ourselves to the will of God and to the love of Jesus. And so this theme of surrender came up in our breakfast again uh, uh, yesterday. And, um, you know, Ed was reminding us about when he shared that you know, lack of humility is kind of the linchpin for all of this. If we don't humble ourselves fully before God, we don't experience any of the other stuff to the extent that we could. And I want to hold out to you the hope and the reality that there's so much more available to you and the only thing standing in the way of it is you. Here's the clincher. Even you getting out of your own way can only be a work of God. And so you even have to humble yourself for that. You've got, you've got to go to the Lord and say, God, I don't know how to get out of the way. Would you just like get me out of the way here a little bit? Like, could you, you know, could you pull a little number on me here? Because I don't, I don't know what to do. Who, feel, who feels stuck sometimes? Right. You know why? Because we're really good at getting stuck because we don't know what we're doing. But Jesus knows. The Holy Spirit knows. The Father knows. This language of, uh, I don't know, I, I guess it was 6.30 this morning and I just didn't think to put up the other half of this verse, but it is, the, it is God who works in you to will and to act according, or in order to fulfill his good purpose. So that's uh, Philippians 2, verse 13. That language of willing and acting, 
That's the same language that's in Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, I desire to do this, but what I desire to do, I don't do. And what I desire not to do, I do. So I see this law at work within me. (laughs) That my flesh, when it encounters a law, right? We talked about this a lot. When the law comes in, my flesh takes that and it turns it into disobedience. So in yourself, even having the desire to do the right thing does not mean you have the ability to effect, to act on the right thing in your own strength. But when God's in the picture, He's the one who takes care of the desires. He's the one who takes care of the actions. And I, I'm being, I was being a little silly earlier, but there is a real sense in which Without the help of Jesus, I could not have put my clothes on in the right order today. Like, I couldn't have even put clothes on at all today. I couldn't have woken up today. I couldn't have breathed today without Jesus. Right? I love that song. It's your breath in my lungs. And, you know, that, that's calling out a whole bunch of images from Scripture. One being where, Jesus, or where, the, where the Father forms Adam out of the dust of the earth and he breathes life into him, right? But it also reminds me of Colossians where it says all things are held together through Christ Jesus. All things held together. All creation is sustained in the presence of Jesus, in the reality of Christ. So I can't do anything without him. And everything I think I can do without him, it's actually him. And I don't like that because that makes me feel weak that makes me feel less than you know what it makes me feel like a nothing oh wait Jesus became nothing oh wait Jesus was weak he was vulnerable oh man Jesus humbled himself took on the nature of a servant Jesus didn't do anything that wasn't powered by the Father and the Holy Spirit. To be human is to be dependent. A couple of weeks ago, I think Kim and Ed, maybe you guys were up here after the service and we were talking about heaven. And you know, people ask a lot of questions about heaven. We ask questions like, oh, do you think we'll need to eat in heaven? It's like, I bet I hope we're going to eat in heaven. But do we need to eat in heaven? Oh, I don't know. You know do we need, do we need, uh, you know, do we need to breathe in heaven? Do we need to, like, can we die in heaven? Yeah, and, um, and I never thought about this before, but it just hit me in that moment. And I'm like, of course we need to eat in heaven. Of course we need to breathe in heaven. If our vision of heaven is that we're more independent, then we've missed heaven. Because the whole thrust of Scripture is us to become more dependent, not more independent. The whole thrust of the, of the, the, the Bible, the life of Jesus, the gospel, is to become increasingly dependent upon the Father. And so if heaven is anything, it's that we need more to survive rather than less. If it's anything, it's that we need to be in more constant relationship with God rather than less. Jesus goes off to pray for hours at a time. Maybe in heaven we'll need to go off and pray for days at a time. I don't know. But it's not going to be less than it would be here. It's only going to be more. 
And I don't like that. I hate it. I'm just being honest. I don't like being dependent because it makes me feel less than. When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says before that, therefore. The reason you do that, the reason you work out your salvation with fear and trembling is because Jesus modeled for us a life of surrender. He modeled for us the reality of letting go and submitting to the Father. So if the second member of the Trinity needs to do it as a human being, then we need to do it as a human being. And so I was just, you know, kind of like thinking about where we've been in Romans, where we're going, and that just felt kind of like a loose end for me, that I really do believe that we haven't quite come to grips with that teaching that all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that no one is righteous, no, not one, but that there is a, a righteousness apart from the law that has been granted to us in Jesus Christ. And I know where I tend to mess up the most is when I keep trying to go back to relying on myself instead of relying on Jesus. So I would just suggest that the reality is we are all in a continual state of dependence on God for our holiness and our salvation, not to mention everything else. Continual state of dependence. It's an ongoing, it's a daily, it's an hourly, it's a minute-by-minute, second-by-second dependence on the God of the universe for my existence, for my relationships, for my holiness, for my eternal security, but also my growth in Christ. And this is why God uses language like, not to belabor this either, but that's why he uses language like, you are predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Why? Because you wouldn't get there any other way. Like the only way it's going to happen is if God makes it happen. But that's a good thing because you have a God that loves you so much that he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. And I think last week you had the theme, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. By the way, what, what book of the Bible is that in? Philippians. Same book. Same letter. Same train of thought. God's not going to leave you alone. You've got some strife. So let's look at the life of Jesus to remember how we're supposed to live. In the light of his incredible sacrifice and submission, you need to work out your salvation with fear and, trem fear and trembling because the only way this is going to happen is if the guy upstairs works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. And then he goes on to explain what that looks like for the life of the church in Philippi, which essentially is quit being separated and come back together in love. No more of this disagreements and arguing and uh, guys it's low hanging fruit no more of this a divided church over things like politics 
you know you have more in common with a Christian of a different political persuasion than you have with a non-Christian of the same political persuasion. You understand that, right? Like, it makes me so sad to see this. But it's, it's individual, it's this group here, it's the nation, it's the world, it spans across time. Collectively, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let us be reverent and in awe, not only of the God who does the work, but a little bit, if, if it's not the right word, but like a little bit of fear of our own ability to crawl into the depths of sin. <coughs> and then the great joy of knowing that God has not let me go there yet. And, and I believe he won't if we will simply remain in him. We will never experience that. Amen? Amen. Well, Lord, it's so hard for us to have that continual reliance. It's so hard for us to, to pray without ceasing. It's so hard for us to abide in your presence day by day. Except that, except that there are realities there that go beyond our will and go beyond our desire. The reality is we are in your hand, whether we think we've placed ourselves there or not. The, real, the reality is we do abide in you, whether we are alert to it or not. God, the reality is you are the 